HGTV's most popular programs all share the same formula. Right? Property Brothers, Fixer Upper, all those things. I can't believe no one sees it, but it's, it's the same thing over and over and over again. Right? Uh, you find a kind of junky looking house, and then throughout the, the program, you, you fix it up, you make it nice, and at the end of the program, whoever bought the house or whoever's moving into the home is just awed by the total transformation. A similar thing happens in a you know, much better form of entertainment. Um, I don't know, it's not a different form, but story. Uh, maybe you're familiar with Captain America, right? His, his story, right? He's, he's a young kid, he's kind of lanky, gets in some fights, but he, he's, he's plucky, he has a good heart, lots of courage. And through, you know, one thing leads to another, he ends up being the uh, subject of a top-secret government project wherein he's going to be injected with the super soldier serum, and so after he's injected, he, he goes from being five foot nothing to being six foot something. He goes from having no muscle to having six-pack abs and guns that are illegal in every state, if you catch my meaning. He is as if he's a different person. He is so transformed. And as we come to Acts chapter 9, this morning, we have uh, the same kind of thing before us, an unbelievable transformation, a radical change, an incredible conversion. This is probably the most famous of all the conversion texts in the Bible. It is the conversion of Saul, who God would raise up to be an apostle quick note on Saul before I give you the main idea. There's this common misunderstanding about Saul, Paul, that God like changes his name from Saul to Paul upon his conversion. It's just not true. I mean, it sounds good, good idea, cool, uh, just not true. Saul always had two names. Uh, one was more Roman Greek, and the other one was Hebrew. Saul came from the Hebrew. It's the Jewish name. Paul is his more Roman name, and he uses Paul more often as he writes his letters and Pretty much from Acts 13 forward, the Bible mostly refers to him as Paul. That, that little nugget's for free, uh, and I give it to you because I will probably call him both names throughout my message because I can't keep myself straight on that sometimes. All that to say, we are going to see the conversion of Saul, Paul, and what, what kind of the big idea of this chapter, what we see is that conversion is the work of God. Conversion is the work of God. So when you think of Acts chapter 9 throughout this week, I want you to think about God's wonderful work of conversion. In the exhortation this morning, I want you to, to see the light, to marvel at the grace of God to all who know him as Father. We'll work through it in four parts, which you can see on your outline. We'll pray, and then we'll get into the text together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy and for your grace. Thank you that in Christ we get to enjoy all the blessings of heaven. And we get to have the, the glories of, of God at his expense. You've been so kind to us. 
We know that we've faltered and failed this week to live out perfect lives. And we, we ask once more this morning for your forgiveness. Once more for your new mercies at the beginning of this new week. And thank you that you always respond yes. And we thank you that we cannot exhaust your grace. We thank you that you are rich in mercy and that you are a big spender. And we ask that you give that mercy and grace to us this morning. That you would help us to hear your word. Help us to see the gospel freshly. Help us to be revived by it, just as we were brought to life by it the first time. God, let the result of our time together this morning be magnification of the Lord Jesus. It is in his name that we are praying. Amen. Look at me at verse 1. Now Saul was still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So we are brought uh, back to the foreground, uh, and we meet Saul. We met him earlier on. He's not a new character. We met him at the end of chapter 7. Stephen is being stoned to death, and then Saul is like gathering people's cloaks and, and tunics. You know, they're, they're taking their coats off, and he's like, I'll, I'll watch these so you guys can, can throw those rocks really good at Stephen. And, and Stephen is, is being murdered, and Saul is standing there, and he hears Stephen praying, uh, Father, forgive them. And then at the beginning of chapter 8, we see him again. He's the one that's ravaging the church, verse 3 tells us. That he's going from house to house to house, and he's, he's knocking on the door. Any Christians here? And he's taking those Christians, those men and women, and the text says he is dragging them off to prison. And he is persecuting the church. He doesn't like the people who call themselves the new people of God. He doesn't like those who are following Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't like them because he thinks they're wrong. Because Paul thinks he knows the one true God. He can't conceive of a God who would take on flesh. Paul's God would never end the sacrificial system. Paul's God would never put an end to the temple. Paul's God would never die for his people. Not the way Paul understood him. And so Paul had made it his life's ambition to snuff out this new heretical Jesus movement. I do love, it says that he was breathing out threats and murder. And so you can just, there is the, the, the scent of blood on this guy's breath. And the word there for, for breathing, uh, Sproul suggests that it's like when you breathe in, so you get that like, like a snorting sound that you can't, you like have a, right? So he's just like snarling with anger. Saul hates this sect that would become Christianity. He wants to snuff it out he, he, he thinks that he is offering service to God. He, he feels called to just do more for God. And so he is on a mission 
to make sure that this false teaching doesn't make it very far beyond Jerusalem. He's going to Damascus to round up this vermin. The problem is, is that Paul is off in his calculations. The God he thinks he knows, he's acting in rebellion against. See, Saul has has constructed a a me-God that has all the same values as Saul. It would never act in a way that Saul wouldn't approve of or immediately recognize. It's not, not so different from today, is it? If you ask people uh, if there is a God, typically people will, will respond with something akin to, yeah, I think there is. And if there is, um, he's certainly um, all-loving, and accepts everyone just the way they are. And though Paul's God is quite different from the God I just described of contemporary society, they share a common theme. They're both self-constructed. Right? They're both me-gods. At the end of the day, these are gods that are conjured up in the imagination of the one who puts their faith in them. But a God of your own creation actually ends up just being a projection of yourself. And so while Paul believes that he's following the real God, he's wrong. Just like many in our culture believe they're following the the real God, the God they feel is there. They're wrong. You You can sincerely believe something and be sincerely wrong. The problem with me, God, is that he doesn't exist. The God that always agrees with you and never contradicts you on anything does not exist. It might make you feel better about yourself, might affirm you in your life, increase your self-esteem. He has no power to save you from the God, the living God, who is holy and demands Payment for sin. Paul thinks he's offering a service to God, but he is sincerely wrong. This brings uh, to mind the wonderful movie Toy Story. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with Toy Story, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, In it, there is a character named Buzz Lightyear who doesn't immediately realize that he's a toy, okay? And so, not realizing that he's a toy, he actually begins to live out the toy. He's designed to be a space ranger, and so he thinks that he's actually a space ranger, and so he's like, I have to fight evil that exists in the galaxy. So that's what what he's aimed at doing, and it's this delusion that leads him to believe he can fly. Okay? And so if you've seen the movie, you know that he ends up in Sid's house, and he's trying to escape. And there comes, just by happenstance, this scene where he's kind of trying to close the dog out of the room by putting his hands on a door and leaning against it. And he sees a commercial for Buzz Lightyear toys. And all of a sudden, he has an existential crisis on his hands, which is what every kid watching the, the show thinks. Um, he's going, who, who am I? I am just a toy. And so he's 
continuing his escape, but he's kind of melancholy. And there's this, this music playing. And all of a sudden, he catches sight of an open window as he comes to the top of a stairway. And he, he lifts his chin kind of triumphantly. And the music that you hear in the background, it actually says, if I believe I could fly, and it says, I could fly. And you're like, man, he's going to do it. He's a plastic toy. He's about to go out that window. He believes he can fly. He's got this. And so he jumps. You know what happens. Really sad music plays. The camera gives you this overhead shot of him lying on his back. His arm is dislodged from the rest of his body. Because the reality is, he can't fly. You can sincerely believe something and be sincerely wrong. Reality matters. Truth matters. And so if I've got my faith in this me God that makes me feel good about myself, that doesn't help me deal with the real God who demands payment for my sins. I still stand condemned before the real God who judges righteously. And so I think a good question for all of us, if we want to relate to to Saul here at the beginning of Acts chapter 9, is to ask ourselves, which God do I follow? A me God? Who, you know, I can just tweak, make me feel good about myself all the time. Or, Or am I following the God who has revealed himself in Scripture? Who can contradict me with his word and change the way I think about the world? even when I don't like it. We need to be careful to make sure that we're following the living God rather than just projections of ourselves. Even Paul, who was smarter than most of us, was deceived. He thought he was offering a service to God, doing God's will even, by persecuting the people of God. But in verse 3, he has an encounter with the living God. The reality that is. Verse 3, as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Gulp. (laughs) Right? Like, oh, no. I have got this whole thing backwards. I I would love to know what flashed through Paul's mind at this point. Like, I'm going to persecute the people that are following this Jesus fellow, and then all of a sudden, with a flash of light, he is knocked off of his high horse... By Jesus, you know, the guy that he thinks is dead but is is risen. His whole worldview is coming unraveled all at once. I do love the the bright light it talks about. We learn from Acts, later in Acts, that this happens at around noon. And so for uh, the light of Christ to come and blind him, it's it's almost like when the sun rises in the morning, you can't see the stars anymore because it's so much brighter. The glory of God shows up and it's so much brighter than the noonday sunshine. It vanishes like the night does at the dawn. 
God shows up. It's incredible. And in his blindness, Paul comes to see. He comes to see the true God. He comes to see the real and risen God of Scripture. He comes to meet and believe in Jesus Christ. He recounts later that this is of first importance. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then He appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, He also appeared to me. Jesus appears to Paul and proves the reality of the resurrection. The God who is interrupts Paul on his way to Damascus. This is pretty dramatic. Paul has to have his whole worldview come unraveled. He has to be blinded before he sees the truth about Christ. Maybe that's the experience some of you have had when you came to be Christians. Or maybe it's the type of experience that you will have to have in order to become a Christian. I I don't, don't know. What I do know is that Christ is risen and you should become a Christian. It is really interesting. I never noticed this before. Uh, But there are actually more people that witness Jesus' resurrection than would have witnessed the crucifixion. Did you know that? So like, historically, it's more believable that someone would die than raise from the dead. But in terms of eyewitness evidence, it's actually more evidence that he rose from the dead than there is that he died. It's pretty incredible. Never thought about it. But he's appearing to more than 500 people. He's appearing to the 12. He's appearing to Paul here. And Paul's worldview is, is coming unraveled. He's coming face to face with the real God. And all at once he realizes, I have made a big mistake. I have been persecuting Jesus. Do notice this in verse 4. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now, if you're keeping track, you might have a question at this point that Paul doesn't. What do you mean I'm persecuting you? I don't need a finger on you, Jesus. I'm persecuting these Christians out here. Right? Paul doesn't ask that question because he understands what Jesus is saying. To persecute my church, to persecute my people, is to persecute me. Jesus does not see his church as an it or a building, but as me. What that means is how you treat the church is how you treat Jesus. If, 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 this, if this is true, that is. That's how closely Jesus identifies with his people. That means when you slander your brothers and sisters in Christ, 
you slander Jesus. When you gossip about your brothers and sisters in Christ, you gossip about Jesus. When you do harm to the church, you're doing harm to Jesus. I think this this truth is made even more clear the intimacy between Jesus and his people in 1 John 2, 9 through 11. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in darkness, walks in darkness and doesn't know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. To hate The church is to hate Jesus. This idea that, oh, I love Jesus. It's those Christians I can't stand. It's the church I can't stand. That's from hell. It's an impossibility. If you love Jesus, you have to love his church. Right? You can't can't invite me over to dinner and say, and leave that awful wife of yours at home. You might be able to say, like, Chelsea, you come over to dinner and leave that awful husband at home. That might work. But it's not going to work the other way around, okay? The church is the bride of Christ. And if you want Jesus, you've got to take the church. Not perfect, you know that. We're a mess. But we're repenting. We're trusting in Christ for grace. Learning to love one another well. How you treat Jesus or how you treat the church is a reflection of how you treat Jesus. To neglect gathering together with a local church, as we're commanded to in Hebrews chapter 10, is to neglect Jesus. So let me ask you, how are you treating Jesus? Might Christ, if he were in this room right now, face to face with you, say to you, whatever your name is, friend, friend, why are you persecuting me? How are you treating the church? Jesus loves his church And so he interrupts Paul on his way to Damascus. He tells him, get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Uh, I do love this, it's important. Uh, They see this brightness, they hear this sound, but they can't make out the words. It's almost like, Paul understands what Jesus is saying to him, uh, but everybody else hears like that Charlie Brown teacher voice, like wah, 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 wah. Saul has been given eyes to see and ears to hear, even though he's been knocked from his horse and made blind. His eyes were opened, and he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days, and to not eat or drink. I think oftentimes we think of Saul's conversion as immediate, um, and maybe it was, but I, I have to think that over this three days, like there is some serious reflecting going on. He's blind, 
He's fasting. Later we learn that he's praying and God gives him a vision. I wonder, when was the last time you reflected on Jesus like this? Sincerely thought about who God is and what he might be doing in you. The scene then shifts here in verse 10. It shifts. And we're introduced to a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And just a quick note, notice the gospel has made it to Damascus. That's important, right? We've been saying uh, in Acts, what what we see, uh, just review here since I didn't do it at the front end, is that uh, in Acts, the whole book, we summarize it as Jesus goes up, the spirit comes down, and the church goes out. And in Acts chapter one, Jesus is teaching his disciples about uh, his um, plan for them about restoration of the kingdom, about how the gospel is going to go forward. And he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends to heaven where he sits on the throne and from where he rules and reigns. In Acts chapter 2, he pours out the Holy Spirit on the people. They begin to speak and declare the wonderful works of God. Peter explains what they're saying. He says, Jesus, this is happening because Jesus is risen from the dead. He was crucified for sins so that when you put your faith in him, you can have right relationship with God. All you need to do in response is turn from your sins, repent of your sins, and be baptized. Put your faith in Christ. And at that point, the church is kind of born and begins to grow. It fills up Jerusalem all throughout those first seven chapters. And we see the church persecuted but prevailing. At the beginning of Acts chapter 8, after that persecution becomes more intense and Stephen is killed, we see that the church is scattered but that it continues speaking of Christ. I mean, if there's a headline of Acts chapter 8, it's that the gospel goes beyond Jerusalem. We see Philip go to the Samaritans, and they respond. Jews would be like, what? Samaritans believing? That happens? We also see the gospel go not only to Judea and Samaria, but to the very ends of the earth, as it goes to an Ethiopian African eunuch. At the time, the Romans considered a where the eunuch was from, Africa, Ethiopia, as the very edge of the earth. And so you see Jesus' words are being fulfilled from Acts chapter 1-8 as the church kind of leaks out of Jerusalem and begins to fill the globe with this wonderful news that Jesus has risen from the dead. And even though Luke doesn't record it for us, the gospel has made its way to Damascus. It's, it's there. No apostles went. We don't even have a record of an ordinary person go, but the gospel has made its way there. There are Christians in Damascus, and one of them is Ananias. Verse 10, And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, Here am I, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in, and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. And Ananias says, that's a false vision because I ain't going nowhere, right? I love, I just love this. Like the Lord's like, hey, Ananias, there's this guy named Saul. He's in Judas's house. Judas lives on Straight Street. I want you to go there and lay your hands on him. And initially you think if I'm in Ananias' position, this is exciting. God is giving me a mission. I'm at the center of his plans. This is really cool. 
And then, like, the name comes. It's, his name's Saul. And all at once, Ananias, you can tell, he's like, uh, God, I don't know. He's, I don't know if you know this or not. But Saul is kind of a bad dude. Right? Look what he says in verse 13. Lord, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. He has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Love when we try to inform God of things. In case you didn't know. He has authority here. Now if God says no, he doesn't. God says, I have authority here. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. That's everyone. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul had plans. He thought he had authority. But God had different plans. And God had authority. Paul planned his way, but the Lord directed his steps. Paul had no intention on becoming a Christian. Remember, breathing out threats, angry, hates Christians. He's on a seek and destroy mission. I love the C.S. Lewis quote. He says, Amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, they might as well be talking about a mouse's search for a cat. I think that's apt. Paul is not looking for God here. He's not, you know, just kind of seeking out in the spirituality section at Barnes & Noble, seeing what he can find, and going, you know, I want to figure out this thing called God. No, he thinks he has God figured out, and he's going to persecute these people that are following Jesus. And God interrupts his life. He's not looking for God, but he's chosen by God. He's God's chosen instrument. So God knocks him from his horse and blinds him so that he can see and breathes life into his dead lungs. This is the teaching of Scripture, that apart from an act of God, that we are all dead in our sins, that we all prefer to follow our hearts rather than listening to God's voice. This is the nature of sin, saying, I'm going to be God in my own life, not you, God. I've got this covered. And this is the status of us all. We're all spiritually dead, separated from God. The God that we were made to honor and glorify and enjoy relationship with, we're separated from him by our sins. Not only that, we are in rebellion against him. That's what sin is. It's taking up arms against God. And our rebellion deserves to be rightly punished. But instead of ending us, God makes a way to end evil without ending us. He sends Jesus to die for our sin as our substitute. And to be raised for our justification as our champion. This is gloriously good news. It's good news that we only come to believe 
by an act of God. There's a lot of, uh, we're, we're dead in our sins and dead people don't do anything. It takes God to summon us to life. It's His Word that brings us to life. And we, we can't take any credit for it. It's like if you woke up in the back of an ambulance and you've got you know, the tubes and things sticking out of you and there's blood everywhere maybe. Yeah, it's too graphic. You know, you're just in the back of an ambulance and there's, there's tubes and it's bad. And the EMT sits over top of you and he says, listen, you were dead, but I, I brought you back to life. And you say, actually, uh, Mr. EMT, let's be fair. You didn't do everything here. Like, I had an allergy bracelet on so that you would know what was wrong with me. And, you know, I've been working out a little bit, and so my heart was ready for your treatment. So really, instead of, let's not say that you saved me. Let's say it's a cooperative effort. I did a little bit, you did a little bit, I ended up saved. I'm living now. No, you wouldn't say that because it's ridiculous. It's just as ridiculous to try to take credit for your salvation. Conversion is the work of God. He saved us. Not because there was anything valuable in us, not because of any good things that we have done, but because it was his prerogative, because our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. We do all the sinning, he does all the saving, and he gets all the glory. You get no credit for your salvation. Our salvation is to the glory of God alone. It's His work. When was the last time you went back, just sat back and and you were amazed at your salvation? God, God, why me? Why Why did you save me? When was the last time you were amazed, and and this is an incredible truth, that God loves you? And I'm not not talking about the you who like has your makeup on and you know comes to church on Sunday morning looking good. I'm talking about the you, like the you that you know and don't like. Like that you God loves. (laughs) Like it's incredible. It's incredible that the God of the universe has resolved to love you just as much on your worst day as he does on your best day. That he's decided in his sovereignty, in his goodness, in his mercy to say to you, sinner, I'm I'm going to love you. My steadfast love never fails. And that's incredible. And I think that the test of your spirituality, if you want to take your spiritual temperature here, is to to ask yourself, am I amazed at my salvation? Are you? If not, that's problematic. Conversion is the work of God. You don't have to be good at being good for God to love you. Not about trying, it's about trusting Not about your success in doing, but about your faith in what has been done for you on the cross by Christ. God takes Paul, persecutor of the church, and says, that's the one I'm going to use. I'm going to use him to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. 
And so we read in verse 17. Ananias went and entered the house, and he placed his hands on Saul and said to him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once something like scales fell from Paul's eyes, and he regained his sight. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And so Ananias goes to Judas's house on Straight Street. He knocks on the door and he's like, hey, uh, this is maybe a little weird, but I had a vision that I'm supposed to come here, that a man named Saul <laughs> is here, and that he's in the back and he's blind and he's praying, and I'm supposed to put my hands on him, and then he's going to be able to see. It sounds, can I come in? Can I come in? Yeah, he's, he's here. And Ananias comes in and he, he lays his hands on, on Saul, and I love this. Listen to what he says. Brother. That's incredible. This guy that just a couple verses ago, Ananias is like, he's a very bad man. I don't want anything to do with him. God says, I'm going to save him and I'm going to use him. And an implication of God's saving Saul means that He's brother Saul. <laughs> and Ananias right away accepts him. Brother Saul. It's incredible. I, I wonder if we... Can you relate to Ananias? Are there people that you are afraid of sharing the gospel with? Are there people that you have written off as just, they're just too far gone? can't share the gospel with them. They'll never believe it. Would you be ready for someone like Saul to believe the gospel? Are you ready for it to work? Are you ready to share the gospel with people and actually see the gospel work? Are we ready to receive Saul's into our congregation? If not, we've gotten it wrong somewhere. Asked Owen this morning, Owen, would you like a new baby brother or sister? And he said, no. I think that's how many, many churches are. I pray it's not how we are. God says, are you ready for a new brother or sister? And we sit back and go, no. We'll change things. Make it harder. Don't you know how difficult that person is? Don't you know they're a Republican? Don't you know she's a Democrat? Don't you know she cheers for the Yankees? Yankees? 